Lord, we sing about freedom, and it can be very easy for us to take it lightly or to misunderstand what is meant. When we are free, Lord, it does not mean that we are left to our own former wicked ways, that we are left to sin, Lord, according to the ways of our old path. It does not mean that we're free to live out the lust that once formerly dominated us. It means, Father, that we are free from the enslavement of sin. It means that we are free from the darkness of this world that would seek to overwhelm us. It means that we are free, Father, from the death that we deserve. It means that we are free, Father, to walk as sons and daughters of you. And that, Lord, we will one day be free of all of the struggles of this world and enjoy all of the freedom of eternity with you in glory. Oh, Lord, we as sons and daughters are free indeed because of the resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in you for that. Thank you for what you are doing. And as we turn to your word, I pray that, Lord, in your grace, you would help us to see something good. That, Lord, we would learn about the church. We would see where the resurrection connects to it. And that, Father, as a result of it, Father, we would come away from here encouraged and strengthened and emboldened to go forth in the truth about your crucified and resurrected son, Jesus. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are a visitor with us today, I want to personally thank you for joining us here. There are a lot of places that you could be right now, and you have chosen to be here with us, and that is humbling. And there could be many different reasons why you're here with us today. Perhaps you were invited by a friend or a family member. Perhaps you're visiting. Uh, perhaps you simply knew that today was Easter, so you thought that you would give church a shot. Or perhaps you're looking for a local church, and you're hoping to find a good one. Well, whatever the reason, it is good to have you, and I pray, and I have prayed this week, that the message which we share here will resonate with your heart and with your life. Now, a little about our church, Riverside. We are not a perfect congregation. Far from it, actually. I think most people here would be quick to point out how imperfect we are, while also declaring how wonderfully merciful God is to us in all of our imperfections. And I think as you can see, we are also a small congregation, but we are close. In fact, there is an awful lot of love in this room. Most importantly, we take the claims of the Bible seriously. You've probably guessed that from the songs even that we've sung. We believe the claims of the Bible to be true. For instance, we firmly believe what the Bible says about Jesus. How he is God's son who came to earth by becoming a man. That he lived a perfect, sinless life. That he was slain on a cross to make payment for our sins against the holy God. And that he truly rose again after three days, returning to heaven in triumph not long after. We believe this to be true. Indeed, on, on Easter Sunday, in fact, on just about any Sunday, we are eager to say that Christ, the Savior, is risen. 
It's also important to know that we highly value the preaching of the Bible here at Riverside. We generally preach through books of the Bible, one passage, one verse even, at a time. In fact, as of late, I have been preaching through the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, a letter of the Apostle Paul, who was an important leader in the early church, who he, which, he, which he wrote to a, a young pastor named Timothy, as that young pastor struggled to care for people in an ancient city known as Ephesus. Now, though we often pause our preaching on Easter Sundays in order to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ specifically, today we're actually going to continue in our study through this book. And it actually works out really good because today we're going to hear about the living God who, as verse 16 says, was taken up in glory. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, we discover the motivation behind this whole letter. We get the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote this communication to this young pastor named Timothy. And what we learn here is that though Paul wanted to come to Timothy and to the Ephesian church to instruct them better in the truth of God, he wrote this letter in case of his delay so that Pastor Timothy and this church would know how to rightly live out the Lord's instructions for their congregation. You see, to the Apostle Paul, the church was crucial. Crucial to him because it is crucial to the Lord Jesus who actually died to save his church. Now we see in these verses how highly the Lord's Apostle valued the local church. He saw it as a household of God himself, and he saw it as an institution responsible to support the truth of the living God before the world. Now, as we consider these three verses today, I want us to understand two truths. Number one, the truth about the church. And number two, the truth the church supports. Beginning today with number one, the truth about the church. Look with me again at verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the household of of God. This word church, an ancient word that was used for centuries, though not many people stopped to actually consider its meaning, it literally refers to the assembly or the congregation of Christians. It is Christians gathered together or Christians assembled together or Christians congregated together or if I may, Christians churched together. For the purpose of the unified worship and service of the God of heaven. And there are two ways that the New Testament refers to the church. There is the universal church, which refers to all Christians of all ages and in all places who have believed in Jesus and who are redeemed children of God. The Apostle Paul, who died 
around 2,000 years ago, was a member of the church. Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in London a couple of hundred years ago, was a member of the church. I, a believer in Jesus Christ today, am a member of the church. It's believers of all ages and all places who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's the universal church. And this church, the church universal, has not yet ever been fully congregated. I've never sat together and worshipped Jesus with the Apostle Paul. But it will one day be congregated because Jesus will return and the whole church will be then gathered together. But the New Testament also refers to the local church. In fact, that's primarily what we're talking about in the New Testament is the local church, which is the local gathering of believers in towns and cities who have committed to each other and who worship God together. Riverside is a local church here in Newport Ritchie, just like the Ephesian church was a local church that was pastored by Timothy. It was a local church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Now, Paul calls the church in verse 15, if you look at that verse, the household of God, which seems to combine two wonderful thoughts. First, the church is the household of God in that the people who make up the church are likened to a spiritual temple in which God's Spirit himself resides. Paul spoke of this in another letter, in his letter to the Ephesian church. In chapter 2 of that letter, beginning in verse 19, he said this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What this means is that the church, the, the people who make up the church, and no longer some grand building or structure in the city of Jerusalem. The church, the people of the church, is the temple of God where God himself dwells. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells inside of them. And when churches come together, when peoples commit together in a local church, you see the dwelling place of God in their midst because his people are there. Secondly, the church is the household of God in that it is the spiritual family of God that is unified by truth and love. Paul spoke of the household in that kind of a familial way already several times in this chapter. If you'll look back just a few verses, look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. Speaking about an overseer or a pastor or an elder, he says... This overseer must manage his own household well. In verse 5, he says the same thing. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, he says. 
Again, in verse 12, he says the same thing about deacons. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. He speaks of household in this familial way of a husband and a wife with children. Well, I have to think that the concept of family household is still in Paul's mind when he writes about it here, writing about the church here in verse 15. That the local church especially is something akin to a family with bonds of brotherhood, with a commitment to the whole group, and with a love for God and for each other, which serves as the concrete holding the whole family structure together. In other words, when we talk about a local church, we're talking about people who are not just the dwelling place of God, but we're talking about a people who are family in God. That there's a relationship and a connectivity that is very different from relationships outside of the local church. That because we have this vertical relationship with God, there is a tight, intimate relationship that the church is to have with each other. When you think about the church as Paul does and as the Bible promotes, you realize that it's truly a blessed institution. That its people serve as the actual dwelling place of God. And that its people live as the family of God together in this world. Now beyond this, verse 15 tells us that the church is of the living God. The God of heaven, the God who made the universe and the earth and all that is on the earth, is, it says, the living God. He is not dead like the idols of old or even like the modern day idols which we form in our hearts in our feeble attempts to replace God. God is no lifeless sculpture shaped and fashioned by the hands of men, nor is he anything like the hopeless lust that never satisfies us when we turn to it. He, God, is the living and true God, and he himself is the source of all life. Paul already mentioned this in passing in chapter 1, where in verse 17, in praise of God, he says, To the king of ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He is the immortal God of all ages. And Jesus is referred to in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, with these words. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In God is life, and from God we receive life. Because he is the living God, when he came to earth and died for sinners on the cross, the grave could never keep him. Yes, Jesus became a man. He took on flesh. Yes, he died a cruel death on the cross where he not only faced the brutal physical punishment, but more truly and more seriously, he faced the separation between he and the Father where he bore our sins upon himself. And he truly died upon that tree, entering into the grave. But he is the God of life. And he cannot be bested even by the grave. And so today we come together on Easter Sunday and we rejoice that though this king paid for our sins at the cross, this king has been raised back up again and he is both our Lord and our risen Savior.
And the church is of the living God, it says. Because verse 15 is in the context of learning how to rightly behave as the church of God, this idea of being of the living God, as Paul writes, refers to his ownership and his authority over the church. So not only is the church the spiritual dwelling place of God, and, and not only is it the spiritual tight-knit family in Christian love, but the church is an institution under the leadership of the living God himself through his resurrected son, Jesus Christ, who shepherds his church with wisdom and grace and love. Over this household is King Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 18 says of Jesus that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The one who was raised first is the one who is over all of his people, whom he promises to one day raise from the dead. He is the preeminent one whom we look to and glory in and seek to obey. And finally, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, it says. The words in our English Bibles, pillar and buttress, translate two words from the Greek original, the language in which the New Testament was originally written. It translates two words from the Greek original, and they both have to do with the support of buildings. What Paul is communicating through this imagery of pillar and buttress is that the church, the household of God, serves as the Lord's enforced and protected structure that holds up his truth and supports his truth and even guards his truth. The church has the high task of elevating and protecting the truth that God has communicated in Jesus. You see, friends, local churches are not merely places where people who know Jesus gather together and commit together, as wonderful as that is. Local churches also have the incredible responsibility to support the good news about the Lord Jesus, along with the truths of the whole Bible in a dark, hard world. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, it is the local church's duty to support the truth about Jesus, to stand strong in the truth, to promote the truth, and even to guard the truth against those who would undermine it. When one iota is added to the gospel of Jesus, or when one iota is taken away from the gospel of Jesus, the church must stand up and speak. And of course, this must be done love and humility but oh what a task has been given to us in the lord's strength not just to proclaim the gospel but to support it and even protect it so let's have this sink in for us first of all we should commit to a church as family in our world especially in this land that we live in church hopping church shopping consumerism when it comes to the church or just simple church attendance without commitment to the church is the rage. 
that there are many people who call themselves Christians but will not make the choice of actually committing to a local church, of actually saying, I'm with you, I believe what you believe, I will be under the leadership that is here, I will serve you as part of this family. It is all the rage today to have one foot in and one foot out. That must not be the case, friends. There was no such thing as a churchless Christian in the New Testament. And there should not be one today. So join a local church and commit to God's imperfect family in love. Some are afraid to join a church because they say, I've got so much baggage, so much tough stuff, I, I just can't do it. Friend, that's such an unreasonable argument because you're, a, you're being asked to join into a body of people who have so much tough, tough stuff, so much baggage, so much stuff on their own that they also bring to the table. This is an imperfect church, and there is no church out there that is perfect until the day his full redeemed church stands before Jesus Christ in his presence in glory. So join a church. Second, we must humbly recognize who stands over our church. It is not me. It is not the elders. It is not a deacon. It is not a strong-willed individual. Jesus is our head. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our king. And we must look only to him and his word for wisdom and direction and leadership. And we must obey his word in strength. We are a church, as verse 15 says, of the living God. We are his church. And we should delight in that and look to Jesus for leadership, direction, everything that we need as a local church. And third, we should, we should approach our responsibility that's been given to us with all seriousness. Now, it doesn't mean that we become jerks. It doesn't mean that we get online and we try to pick fights with people over rare theological arguments. It means that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is muddied, when the message about Jesus Christ is muddied, we are ones who graciously bring clarity to the gospel. And when it comes to our congregation, we make sure that we preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we insist upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we encourage everyone to embrace the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's truth one, the truth about the church. Secondly today, we have the truth the church supports. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The beginning of verse 16 is phrased strangely in our English translations, which leads to some confusion. This word confess, which is translated as beyond all question or most certainly by some other translations, this word confess, it contains both a positive element in that it refers to something agreed upon by everybody in the church, and it contains a negative element in that it's something beyond question or denial by the people of the church. So this word confess, it's something agreed upon by all and denied by none. It is confessed by the church together. 
And that which is confessed, or that which is agreed upon by all, and which is denied by none, is the mystery of godliness. That the mystery of godliness is great. He says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now Paul used the same phrasing in another place, which I think helps us here. In Ephesians 5, verse 32, he wrote, This mystery is profound, or great, back to the same word. This mystery is profound, or great, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In that verse, in Ephesians 5, 32, he is saying that the spiritual reality of Christ saving his church and dwelling within his church and leading his church is a mystery. It's something which was hidden in ages past and is still beyond our full comprehension now. That it is a mystery, but it is great. It is grand. It is wonderful because it means that Christ is for us, that he's with us, that he's over us, even though it is hard for us to fully grasp this reality. It's magnificent, but it's also a mystery. So my friends, if you don't fully comprehend all that Jesus has to say about the church and its relationship with him, just know that you're in pretty good company because the Apostle Paul called it a mystery. And this seems to be similar to what Paul is getting at here in verse 16. Let me paraphrase verse 16. We confess, we all agree, we we all certainly do not deny, we confess the mystery of godliness. Godliness is the righteous way of walking or living before God in his truth. The church, as we have seen, is to uphold the truth, supporting the truth. And as it does so, it walks in godliness. It walks in righteous, honorable, God-glorifying living. Now, we don't fully comprehend how the truth about Christ and supporting the truth about Christ results in godliness. That is somewhat of a mystery to us. But that is precisely what it does. When the people of the church hold tight to the truth and support the truth given to the church, it creates godliness among the membership of the church. As Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, it transforms us through the renewal of our minds. The truth about God It transforms us, and it makes us into godly individuals. And the truth that brings about such wonderful, mysterious godliness in our lives is the truth about our living God, which is what the last half of verse 16 is all about. The truth that brings about this wonderful, mysterious godliness in our lives is the truth about our living God, which is what verse 16 tells us. The last half of this verse is an expression of the very truth that the church is to support like a pillar and like a buttress. And it's the very truth that brings about godliness in the Christian life. It is the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this truth is provided to us in the form of an ancient hymn which the first century church would have declared to each other. They would have reminded each other through this hymn of the creed which they all accepted and confessed. 
So in the last part of this verse 16, he talks about this mystery of godliness, and then he gives us this hymn about Jesus. This is the truth that brings about godliness. This is the truth that we are to hold to and to support as a local church. This hymn, this truth, it is all about Jesus. It first of all says that he was manifested in the flesh. This means that God came to earth by becoming a man. This we celebrated a few months ago at Christmas. That God in his glory humbled himself by taking on flesh. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The glory is that Jesus, the eternal God, the eternal son of God, he became a man by taking on flesh. And then it says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Through Christ's righteous life while he walked on earth, and his sacrificial death when he went to the cross, and his glorious resurrection, the Spirit of God casts his verdict upon Jesus the Son, and his verdict was completely positive. Jesus is the only righteous one who conquered sin, death, and hell through his own death and resurrection, and the Spirit of God declares him to be righteous and victorious. The Spirit, he sees what Jesus did, and he declares as he expresses it through the work of the apostles in the New Testament, this Son, this Son of God, he is vindicated, he is justified, he is the righteous one that all the world should turn what's more it says he was seen by angels angels who long to look upon the glories of God witnessed the incarnation of Christ they witnessed the sacrificial death of Christ and they witnessed the glorious resurrection of Christ the angels of God in heaven in agreement with the spirit of God have seen Jesus and they also agree that he is wonderful You begin to see, Christian, how this begins to shape us into godliness. The more we look at God and what he has done, the more we begin to become like God. It also says that he was proclaimed among the nations. While Jesus was on earth, his disciples proclaimed him. After he departed from the earth, his disciples proclaimed him. And even today, his disciples proclaim him. He is the Savior who accomplished the redemption of sinners, and He is the Savior whom we proclaim even today to the peoples of this world, including to everyone here today, that Jesus is the Savior who can save you. And with this, it says He was believed on in the world. Though many people reject Him, in fact, I think most do, many people reject Him, many have believed on Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And my friends, don't understand, don't misunderstand. When that happens, when a soul believes on Jesus as Savior and Lord, it is a miracle from God. The message about Christ is not powerless. In fact, the message about Christ is so mighty in people's hearts, minds, lives, and spirits that it makes people believe, that it connects to our heart need, that it's evidently true it's it's clear to us this is what i need i know i'm a sinner jesus has accomplished what i need between me and god it's a miracle that he makes people 
believe. And then it says that he was taken up in glory. After Jesus was raised from the dead in triumph, the living God, Jesus Christ himself, ascended back into heaven where he was received by the Father until the day where he will return to bring us home. He conquered the world, and now he is the God who is ever over the world. So he, the resurrected one, has been taken up in glory where he rightfully belongs. In light of this, let us be challenged in three ways. First of all, we must each embrace the truth of God in faith. I would guess that there are many here who have heard the message of Jesus Christ, but have not embraced Jesus in faith for whatever reason. The message at Easter, the message of Resurrection Sunday, is that you can not only be forgiven of your sins, but that you can have life in Jesus now and forever. I hope that you'll keep coming and keep learning as we teach the Bible, and that you will begin to see that the claims of Jesus are true. But let me implore you, friend, recognize your sin today. Recognize your sin against a holy God, but also recognize that the holy God of heaven loves you. You have no claim that he's not a God of love because he loved you by showing his perfect love by sending his only son to die to pay for all of those sins that you have committed. And he is the powerful God. He's not impotent, but glorious in his strength. For Jesus did not remain in the grave, but he rose from the dead. And now, if you will embrace him, not only will your sins be forgiven, but you will have new life in him, and it will last unto forever. Oh, friend, believe in the crucified and resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Embrace the truth of God in faith. And secondly, we as a church must hold tight to the truth that brings about godliness. We often say here that there's never a point where a Christian graduates from the gospel. You never gain enough that you can move on past the gospel. No, that is the message, the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, that we need to daily take into our minds, into our hearts. And when we do that, as it's preached, as we read it and meditate upon it on our own, as we gather with other Christians in the church, as we do that, as we put the gospel forefront in our minds and lives, over time, it shapes us. And we begin to resemble godliness in our lives. Because God uses truth to shape the people of the church into his image. Third, we must proclaim this truth to a world that needs it. Jesus, he says, was believed on in the world. Oh, let it not just be our prayer, but let it be our daily ambition to share this message with those around us by having a life that is commensurate with our faith and by having words that express our faith to people that they might know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose for them. So we have seen that the church of God supports the truth of the living God. Jesus the Savior was crucified for our sins, and Jesus the Savior has risen from the grave. Therefore, 
Let us hold up this truth without fear and let us guard it until the day that Christ returns. For we are God's people, we are his spiritual household, and our task is for the glory of our great God and King. Friends, if you're new here today, we're so glad again that you're here. We pray that we'll continue to have an opportunity to minister this truth to you. We don't claim to have it all figured out, but we think this message about God and the Bible, about what Jesus has done, is abundantly clear. And we would love to encourage you in this message. If you're here today and you have questions about this and you'd like to talk to someone, we have quite a few people here who are capable of talking to you about that. Come and speak to me or someone else who you've seen up on the platform today. We would love to talk with you more about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, I thank you that we have had the chance on this day to gather as a church family and to lift up the name of Jesus, our resurrected Lord. I pray that this word would encourage us, that it would sharpen our minds about what the, about what the local church is, and that, Father, we would be greatly encouraged to want to go forth in this message. If there are people here, Lord, who have not embraced your son in faith, I pray that, Lord, we would have opportunities to talk with them and that you would bring faith into their lives, Father, receiving him in repentance and belief, I pray. We thank you for all that you're doing through our local church. Bless us, we pray now, in Jesus' name.